Welcome to Orthodox.Faith. This is John Harmon. And this is Ron Bentley. In this podcast, we teach responsible Bible and Christian theology. And in the last episode, we started into the book of Jonah. It's one of the minor prophets. And by the way, minor just means shorter, not necessarily less important. But one of the minor prophets is towards the end of the Old Testament, in our Bibles at least. What we learned was that God called Jonah, a prophet in Israel, to go to preach to the nasty, hated, deplorable Assyrians (laughs) in the city of Nineveh. Jonah found the whole thing so distasteful that he literally hopped on a boat headed in the opposite direction, bound for the farthest point he could go away from Nineveh. But as Jonah no doubt knew, there was no way he could escape from Yahweh. The ship finds itself in a storm. Jonah admits he's probably the reason for the storm, and the whole thing will go away if the crew throws him overboard. The crew does everything they can to avoid doing that, and then when there are no other options, they actually do it. They throw Jonah overboard, and the storm stops. And the sailors, already more than a little worried when they heard Jonah serve the God who actually made the sea, they are duly impressed by this Mm -hmm. display of power. Okay, John, this is a man overboard situation, and I know what to do at this (laughs) point. You throw out the class four personal flotation device, aka life preserver, designate a spotter to point to the person in the water the whole time, and you sell a tight figure eight that requires tax and no jibes because jibes take a long time, and it brings you back to the person in the water traveling upwind and at the appropriate speed to haul them back on board. Was this ancient Near East procedure, and did they get to the back? (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Uh, you've got a handle on modern rescue <laughs> procedures, but that is not what happens okay. in the story of Jonah. I don't think that was ancient Near Eastern nautical procedure for a man overboard situation, <laughs> but we are going to find out what did happen in this episode. Chapter two consists mainly of a poem that is set in Jonah's voice that we would identify as a psalm, very clearly a psalm. Many of us are familiar with Psalms from the longest book of the Bible (laughs) called Psalms. And we'll recognize some familiar features of that when we read in the second chapter of Jonah here. So let's get started. And Ron, if you'll permit me the pun, we'll try not to go overboard. When we left off with the sailors in chapter one, we learned that when they threw Jonah into the ocean, it grew calm. And we're told that the sailors greatly feared the Lord and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. This doesn't mean that they suddenly stopped worshiping their own gods and turned to a monotheism faithful only to Yahweh, the God of Israel. But they did pay what they believed was proper homage to a God whose power they had witnessed and on whose good side they very much wanted to be. They made a sacrifice to God because that's what you do to please God's, and the vows that they made could have been promises to offer additional sacrifices in the future. We don't know specifically what these sacrifices and vows were, however, nor do we even know for sure when the sailors made them. It could have been right after the storm, or perhaps it was whenever they got to shore. In any case, God clearly got their attention and they wouldn't soon forget his name. Well, that's for sure. At this point in the story, the focus shifts from the sailors to Jonah in the water. Okay. There's a colleague of mine, Joanna Hoyt, who says in an excellent commentary that she's recently published that when a main character in a movie, for example, is in a life or death situation before the halfway point in the film, the audience 
holds its breath in anticipation, but they know that the character has to make it because there's still an hour left in the movie. (laughs) She says, that's maybe about how we feel between verses 16 and 17. Before we know what happens to Jonah, we suspect that something's going to happen with Jonah. The sailors have walked off stage unharmed, but Jonah is in the drink. So how does he survive? Well, verse 17 tells us. It says, Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. We could perhaps even say, Meanwhile, the Lord provided a big fish because this is all supposedly going on while the action on the ship is sort of being wrapped up. Well, there's a collective sigh of relief among the sailors. (laughs) Right, right. We sort of get a a dual account of what's happening in each scene. And we already know from chapter one that God is in control of what's happening, but God's means for working things out are totally unexpected here. The, the only words to describe the creature that swallowed Jonah are a big fish. Okay. That's all we have. Okay. And, and the fish only does two things. Uh-huh. It swallows Jonah, and then at the end of the chapter, it vomits Jonah out. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> so on the surface, uh, bo- both of these might seem to be negative actions for Jonah. Yeah. And we're we're going to come back to that in a minute, whether or not they were. The author could have had a whale in mind. And I've got, you know, I've got to tip the hat uh, to the the popular notions and the right. language that's used around this. But there isn't a separate word in biblical Hebrew for a whale. In the end, the specific marine life that God used here isn't important to the story. The miraculously appointed event doesn't change, no matter what kind of large aquatic uh, beast <laughs> it is it that is, actually sir. swallows uh, Jonah. Besides the fish, the same verse reports that Jonah was in the fish's belly for three days and three nights. Yeah, this is where it gets fascinating for Christians, of course, because of Uh its apparent connection to Jesus. Uh, Before we look at that, though, let's parse what it means here in Jonah. On the face of it, the phrase three days and three nights means three full days. But figuratively, it could refer to a considerable amount of time or to the popular notion that the journey to the underworld or shale took three full days. It might be like our phrase, six feet under. It has a literal meaning, but figuratively, it means dead and buried. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, three days and three nights would highlight the fact that the fish was an actual divine rescue from the dead. But this is where we've got to talk about the way Jesus himself used this story. We have an account in both Matthew and Luke. Jesus gets really frustrated at a crowd that demands a sign. And given the way Matthew and Luke tell the story up to the point, we're kind of wondering, where have you guys been all along? Haven't haven't you seen (laughs) signs already? In this case, though, the demand for a sign seems to be a demand to show something remarkable or the crowd won't believe Jesus. And Jesus' response is to call the whole lot of them a wicked generation. He goes on to say, you're not getting any sign but the sign of Jonah. And this is where it gets kind of interesting. In Matthew's account, Jesus actually compares himself to Jonah in two different ways. The first and seemingly most obvious is that like Jonah was in the fish three days and three nights, so Jesus will be three days in the depths of the earth. In other words, it looks forward to Jesus' death and resurrection. Hmm. The second, though, is that like Jonah, Jesus preaches repentance. In fact, Jesus tells the crowd that the people of Nineveh are better than they are. 
at wow. least Nineveh listened. And <laughs> wow. given the deplorable reputation Nineveh and Assyria still had hundreds of years later, not to mention the simple fact they were Gentiles, this really had to sting when mm. Jesus said that. What's interesting is that in Luke's account, this whole thing is truncated. Jesus simply says, just as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so the Son of Man will be to this generation. That seems to imply Matthew's second parallel, that just as Jonah delivered a message of repentance, so does Jesus, because we're talking about Nineveh's interaction with Jonah here. The direct parallel to Jesus' death and resurrection is not made explicit. However, there are a couple of places in Luke where Jesus does directly indicate that it is written in Scripture, and he'd be referring to the Old Testament, of course, yeah. that the Messiah had to die and rise again on the third day. And one of the places Jesus says this is in the very last chapter of the Gospel of Luke after the resurrection. It's difficult to imagine what Jesus would be referring to if it isn't this sign of Jonah. I don't know of any other place in the Old Testament that suggests dying and rising in three days. Do you, John? No, I don't think there is another place that specifically mentions th the number three in connection with death. That's a really interesting question. I can't think of any other place. Yeah, and in fact, we get this in another place. Paul says the exact same thing in the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. And by the way, we have a whole separate series on that. But what Paul said there was that Christ was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. At least the saying, Really? in accordance with which scriptures? And again, I don't know of anything Paul could be referring to except this sign of Jonah. Maybe a particularly obscure statement in the middle of Hosea, but Jonah seems more obvious, especially since Matthew has made that connection between Jonah and the resurrection explicit. Think about this for a second. It was crucial to Christians that Jesus fulfilled prophecy and that he was the expected Messiah. In a lot of ways, that made perfect sense. It was certainly not expected, though, that the Messiah would die, and Christians went on to insist Scripture indicated the Messiah would rise again, specifically on the third day. And that's more than a little extraordinary, but Matthew has Jesus himself establishing this by direct connection to Jonah, and that makes the book of Jonah extraordinarily important. In any case, I'd like to point out one more parallel between Jonah and Jesus and then an obvious distinction. Jonah and Jesus are both cases of God not letting the disobedience of others interrupt God's plan, which I know is a really important theme for you, John. <laughs> yes. The difference here is that in Jonah's case, it includes Jonah's own disobedience. And in Jesus' case, of course, it is only the disobedience and opposition of those around him. Okay, I probably went way too far afield on this one. <laughs> Jonah was in the fish for three days. Jesus himself highlights that fact as he looks forward to his own death and resurrection. But back to you, John, I believe this is when we find out Jonah was actually busy during this time in the fish. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we come at this point to the real meat of chapter two, okay. which is a psalm. It's a prayer. Quite an eloquent prayer under the circumstances, too, Ron, as I think you mentioned or noted yeah, in the right. previous episode. We notice in verse 1 that Jonah prayed to God. Okay. It doesn't say that he composed a psalm or that he authored anything. He prayed. Okay. Now, we see similar language in the book of Psalms, and, and this could have simply been a psalm that Jonah already knew. One of the purposes of Psalms was to be universal and applicable to a whole variety of situations that fit the Psalms' language and tone. Jonah could have reached for a poem just like that, 
in very much that spirit, something that was already well familiar to him. Or this could be stylized language that was provided by the author of the story, language that reflected the circumstances and fit the situation. And that would not be at all out of place in ancient storytelling. I want to second that, John, only because we have a Greek historian who tells us precisely that. He was telling some stories out of the uh, war between the Greeks and the Persians. And when it comes to some speeches, he says, I I wasn't there for the speeches, but I have put in the mouths of the major actors what would have been appropriate for them to say at this point. (laughs) So it was par for the course. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because this, that was very broadly a feature of ancient storytelling. Right. Nothing that ought to give us any pause or any problem as we think about this psalm in the book of Jonah. But when we look at this poem as a whole, sandwiched into the prose narrative, we realize that the poem has a surprising form. Okay. There are a, a number of recognizable psalm forms, and if you want to know more about them, check out our previous series called Journey into the Psalms. One of the typical psalm forms is the psalm of thanksgiving. And that's what this psalm in Jonah 2 is. And we know that by its structure. Okay. That might not be quite what we expect here, is it? Uh, The the first glance, maybe what we'd expect at this point in the story when Jonah's been hurled overboard and swallowed whole is... Uh, perhaps a lament psalm. Woe is me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's what somebody prayed when they were in trouble. It was a way of calling on God for rescue in a dire situation and a way of affirming God's faithfulness and the psalmist's trust in that faithfulness that God would rescue uh, him or her. But this is not a lament. Okay. It's a thanksgiving psalm that was typically prayed after God had delivered someone from their trouble. It looked back on the psalmist's prayer for help, lifted up what God had done to intervene, okay. and it usually ended with a vow to continue praising God or, or to testify publicly to God's deliverance. The psalm in Jonah 2 has all of these elements that we expect in a Thanksgiving psalm. What does the fact that this is a Thanksgiving psalm tell us? It tells us that the fish is not Jonah's trouble or his punishment. It's God's vehicle of rescue for him. God has saved him from drowning by means of the fish. And Jonah prays in thanks for that at this point in the story. I have to ask at this point, has Jonah finally come around? Hmm. Uh, Maybe we don't know for sure. But it sure seems to me that we're encouraged to entertain that possibility. And we'll find out a little later in the narrative whether Jonah is actually repentant or not. For now, we do hear him say to God, from the deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help and you listened to my cry. And later, to the roots of the mountains, I sank down and the earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought me up from the pit. And at the end, he pledges what I have vowed I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. There's just wonderful imagery and language here of the depths and the heart of the seas, it says, and the currents and the waves And he uses the words, the engulfing waters and seaweed wrapped around his head. (laughs) As we said before, he knows he's at the roots of the mountains in the way that he understood, just being at at the bottom of the bottom. 
we won't go through the psalm line by line here, but let's at least pull out a few important details. He makes mention at the beginning that he called for help from deep in the realm of the dead. Literally, it says, from the belly of Sheol. <laughs> now, as I understand it, Sheol is the underworld, the, the place where the dead go. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we would say the grave or just death in English. Uh, so it's where a person is permanently cut off from the living, including from worshiping God. So it imprisons a person and is inescapable. And here it's a metaphor for the finality of death. Jonah considered himself as good as dead, then actually snatched from the grave, not just delivered from a serious risk or difficult situation. We could say the fact that Jonah lives through this is presented as a resurrection of sorts. And John, what comes to my mind is one of the Psalms, I think it's Psalm 6, that where the psalmist asks God, who worships you from the grave? And it's a rhetorical question. Yeah, I was going to accuse you of, of, of using Christian language here <laughs> as you talk about this, as you talk Talk about this psalm, but this idea of resurrection is found in, in a number of places okay. in the Old Testament. And yes, yes, the um, the sense of being cut off from God meant to them at this time that they could no longer worship God. Okay. In fact, in some of the psalms, we actually see a sense of God, you can't let me die because if you do, you'll lose a worshiper. Right. There's this sense of, hey, God, there's something in it for you uh, if you rescue me. But in the final section of the psalm, when we get to the vows to, to praise and to testify to God's saving Jonah, we get a really important note that says, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But in essence, I, Jonah, won't do that. Uh-huh. I'll sacrifice and praise you. Uh-huh. Well, hmm. He criticizes those who who worship worthless idols, uh-huh. those who turn away from God's love, but, oh, Jonah won't do that. I'll sacrifice and praise to you. Well, the, the word usually translated idols in verse 8 is literally empty nothings. Okay. Worshiping these empty nothings showed a lack of faith in God for an Israelite, and it showed a violation of the covenant. I mean, just straight up and down. But don't miss the irony here. Jonah is a prophet of God. And as a prophet of God, he's a messenger and an enforcer of Israel's covenant with God. Jonah abandoned his own faithfulness to God. So in a sense, he's no better than an idol worshiper. He doesn't seem to own his actions at this point. And I think we might want to keep that in mind as we continue to read. I will admit that nowhere in this prayer does Jonah confess or express that he regrets what he's done. Mm. He expresses thanksgiving, but almost seems to want to gloss over the root problem as if to say, thank you, God, for rescuing me, but let's not talk about what got me into this mess. (laughs) Yeah, that seems to be conveniently omitted from uh, Jonah's prayer. But finally, let's notice that this psalm lifts up the norm that God's mercy and grace require a response. And that response is thanksgiving. When Jonah says at the end of the psalm, salvation comes from the Lord, he does three things. First of all, he praises God as the one whose work saves people. God is the one who does the saving. Secondly, he implicitly praises God as the only Savior. In other words, salvation doesn't come from anywhere else. It comes from God and God alone. And third, God alone is the one who decides to rescue. 
it is fully within God's authority to decide to show mercy or not. At this point, the narrative continues following Jonah's being swallowed and his prayer of thanksgiving. We're told very succinctly in the last verse of the chapter, the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah out onto dry land. So just as God provided or in some translations appointed the fish to rescue Jonah from drowning, so God causes the fish to return Jonah to the land. What did that look like? No idea. (laughs) Is is this a case of out of the frying pan and into the fire? We're (laughs) We're about to find out. What the narrative itself invites us to ask at this point is, does God expect him to go to Nineveh now? Or is God finished with Jonah at this point? Has anything changed in Jonah or for Jonah? All right, John. Now, you and I have discussed this a little bit. And at this point, I want to give Jonah the benefit of the doubt. I want to say that Jonah is gradually working his way back to God and back to obedience. And I see a couple of promising signs. First, Jonah gives himself up in the ship. Uh, That seems to indicate that he knows he's done wrong. He's not completely heartless. He takes pity on the poor Gentile sailors transporting him, and he sacrifices himself to save them. That seems like a selfless act there. And second, we get this magnificent poem, this psalm. And at first, Jonah was specifically fleeing the presence of God. And in that fourth verse of the psalm, he almost seems to regret it. I'm driven away from your sight. How shall I look again upon your holy temple? At this point, he's at least not running away. And Hmm. and if the fish drops him off at the right spot, he might even be (laughs) headed back, traveling in the right direction. Isn't this guy coming around? (laughs) Well, I I think the best we can do is say, yeah, maybe. Okay. Because nowhere in this psalm does Jonah ever admit that he's done anything wrong. That's true. And in fact, you mentioned just a little while ago that He didn't confess, that confession isn't a part of this psalm. It remains to be seen whether Jonah is actually perceiving the people of Nineveh in the way that God does. Yeah, fair enough. There really is no indication whether Jonah has changed his attitude toward the Ninevites or brought that, that attitude into conformity with God's view of the Ninevites. He expressed right at the top of the book, that he was concerned for them. Right. Uh, and and so uh, does Jonah share that concern in the way that God expresses it? Well, there's nothing here to tell us that. Uh, there's really doesn't seem to be anything in chapter two that points to Jonah's concern for anyone but Jonah. While we can read the text as teasing the reader to consider the possibility that Jonah could have or or might still turn around by leaving the question open— it doesn't answer the question at all. But I do agree with you, Ron, that it's the question is there. It's there and it's lying right on the surface and it challenges us and teases us as we continue through the story. Is he coming around with respect to Nineveh? And is he participating in God's concern for them? There's nothing here that leads me to draw that conclusion. Yet. If 
you haven't gotten the idea yet at this point, one really important theme in the Old Testament is that God's will will be done regardless of how God's servants fail God or even those who are directly opposing God, regardless of what they do. God will see God's will done. And notice how that happens here. God provides the fish as Jonah is praying inside the fish, Jonah acknowledges that salvation comes from the Lord. And then God commands the fish to spit him out. God is in control here every step of the way, whether Jonah is with him or not. <laughs> right. This psalm that we see here in chapter 2, Ron, also voices Jonah's gratefulness for an undeserved rescue. And in doing that, though, when we read the psalm in the context that we have it here, it kind of, at least as I read it, exposes his inconsistency with regard to Nineveh. Because at first, remember, Jonah is overwhelmingly against an undeserved rescue of Nineveh. Yeah, fair He's enough. very much against Nineveh receiving the favor of God in any way, shape, or form, because they don't deserve it. As we said early on, the Assyrians were brutal. They were horrific. They were monstrous toward their enemies, including Israel. And Israel had, let's just say, some bad blood when it came to (laughs) Assyria and the Ninevites. So here at this point, Jonah is quite happy to receive from God and to thank God for his own undeserved rescue. (laughs) But not a whole lot more, right? Right. (laughs) Jonah is very grateful, it seems, in this psalm of thanksgiving for an undeserved rescue as long as he's the one being rescued. But the fish deposits Jonah somehow back on land. We don't know where on land, but he is back on land. And that causes us to look forward and ask the questions, well, what happens next? What's going to happen with this character? Well, the answer is next stop, Nineveh. And we'll move forward in the next episode into chapter three, which is actually set in the city of Nineveh. We'll see what Jonah does, but we still don't get a full answer to our question. What's up with Jonah? How are things going with him? That's where we have to wrap it up for this episode. For more information about this podcast and our other activities, please do see our website at orthodox.faith. That's O-R-T-H-O-D-O-C-S dot F-A-I-T-H. And thank you for listening. 